Chapter Three of Book Two of Les Miserables, Volume Two by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Von Ullman. Les Miserables, Volume Two by Victor Hugo. Translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. Book Second, The Ship Orion, Chapter Three. The ankle chain must have undergone a certain preparatory manipulation to be thus broken with a blow from a hammer. Towards the end of October, in that same year, 1823, the inhabitants of Toulon beheld the entry into their port, after heavy weather, and for the purpose of repairing some damages, of the ship Orion, which was employed later at Brest as a school ship, and which then formed a part of the Mediterranean squadron. This vessel, battered as it was, for the sea had handled it roughly, produced a fine effect as it entered the roads. It flew some colors which procured for it the regulation salute of eleven guns, which it returned shot for shot, total twenty-two. It has been calculated that what with salvos, royal and military politenesses, courteous exchanges of uproar, signals of etiquette, formalities of roadsteads, and citadels, sunrises and sunsets, saluted every day by all fortresses and all ships of war, openings and closings of ports, etc., the civilized world discharged all over the earth in the course of four-and-twenty hours one hundred and fifty thousand useless shots. At six francs the shot, that comes to nine hundred thousand francs a day, three hundred millions a year, which vanish in smoke. This is a mere detail. All this time the poor were dying of hunger. The year 1823 was what the Restoration called the Epic of the Spanish War contained many events in one, and a quantity of peculiarities. A grand family affair for the houses of Bourbon, the branch of France, succoring and protecting the branch of Madrid, that is to say, performing an act devolving on the elder, an apparent return to our national traditions, complicated by servitude and by subjection to the cabinets of the North. Monsieur le Duc de Aglulme, surnomed by the liberal sheets the hero of Andujar, compressing in a triumphal attitude that was somewhat contradicted by his peaceable air, the ancient and very powerful terrorism of the holy office, at variance with the chimerical terrorism of the liberals, the sans-culottes resuscitated to the great terror of the dowagers, under the name of descamisados, monarchy opposing an obstacle to progress described as anarchy, the theories of 89 roughly interrupted in the sap, a European halt called to the French idea, which was making the tour of the world. Besides, the son of France, as Generalissimo, the Prince of Carignan, afterwards Charles Albert, enrolling himself in that crusade of kings against people as a volunteer, with grenadier epaulettes of red worsted, the soldiers of the empire setting out on a fresh campaign, but aged, saddened after eight years of repose and under the white cocade, the tricolored standard waved abroad by a heroic handful of Frenchmen as the white standard had been thirty years earlier at Koblenetz. Monks mingled with our troops. The spirit of liberty and of novelty brought to its senses by bayonets. Principles slaughtered by cannonades. France undoing by her arms that which she had done by her mind. In addition to this, hostile leaders sold, soldiers hesitating, cities besieged by millions, no military perils, and yet possible explosions, as in every mine which is surprised and invaded, but little bloodshed, little honor won, shame for some, glory for no one. Such was this war made by the princes descended from Louis the Fourteenth, 
and conducted by generals who had been under Napoleon. Its sad fate was to recall neither the grand war nor grand politics. Some feats of arms were serious. The taking of the Trocadero, among others, was a fine military action. But after all, we repeat, the trumpets of this war give back a cracked sound. The whole effect was suspicious. History approves of France for making a difficulty about accepting this false triumph. It seems evident that certain Spanish officers connected with resistance yielded too easily. The idea of corruption was connected with the victory. It appears as though generals and not battles had been won, and the conquering soldier returned humiliated. A debasing war, in short, in which the Bank of France could be read in the folds of the flag. Soldiers of the War of 1808, on whom Saragossa had fallen in formidable ruin, frowned in 1823 at the easy surrender of citadels, and began to regret Palafox. It is the nature of France preferred to have Rostopchine rather than Balestros in front of her. From a still more serious point of view, and one which it is also proper to assist upon here, this war, which wounded the military spirit of France, enraged the democratic spirit. It was an enterprise of enthrallment. In that campaign, the object of the French soldier, the son of democracy, was the conquest of a yoke for others. A hideous contradiction. France is made to arouse the soul of nations, not to stifle it. All the revolutions of Europe since 1792 are the French Revolution. Liberty darts rays from France. That is a solar fact. Blind is he who will not see. It was Bonaparte who said it. The War of 1823, an outrage on the generous Spanish nation, was then, at the same time, an outrage on the French Revolution. It was France who committed this monstrous violence, by foul means, for, with the exceptions of wars of liberation, everything that armies do is by foul means. The words passive obedience indicate this. An army is a strange masterpiece of combination, whereas force results from an enormous sum of impotence. Thus is war, made by humanity against humanity, despite humanity, explained. As for the Bourbons, the War of 1823 was fatal to them. They took it for a success. They did not perceive the danger that lies in having an idea slain to order. They went astray in their innocence to such a degree that they introduced the immense enfeeblement of a crime into their establishment as an element of strength. The spirit of the ambush entered into their politics. 1830 had its germ in 1823. The Spanish campaign became in their councils an argument for force and for adventure by divine right. France, having re-established El Reineto in Spain, might well have re-established the absolute king at home. They fell into the alarming error of taking the obedience of the soldier for the consent of the nation. Such confidence is the ruin of thrones. It is not permitted to fall asleep, either in the shadow of a machinal tree, nor in the shadow of an enemy. Let us return to the ship Orion. During the operations of the army commanded by the Prince Generalissimo, a squadron had been cruising in the Mediterranean. We have just stated that the Orion belonged to this fleet, and that accidents of the sea had brought it into the port at Toulon. The presence of a vessel of war in a port has something about it which attracts and engages a crowd. It is because it is great, and the crowd loves what is great. A ship of the line is one of the most magnificent combinations of the genius of man with the powers of nature. A ship of the line is composed, at the same time, of the heaviest and the lightest of possible matter, for it deals at one and the same time 
with three forms of substance, solid, liquid, and fluid, and it must do battle with all three. It has eleven claws of iron, with which to seize the granite on the bottom of the sea, and more wings and more antenna than winged insects, to catch the wind in the clouds. Its breath pours out through its hundred and twenty cannons, as through enormous trumpets, and replies proudly to the thunder. The ocean seeks to lead it astray, in the alarming sameness of its billows. But the vessel has its soul, its compass, which counsels it, and always shows it the north. In the blackest nights its lanterns supply the place of the stars. Thus, against the wind it has its cordage and its canvas, against the water wood, against the rocks its iron brass and lead, against the shadows its light, and against immensity a needle. If one wishes to form an idea of all those gigantic proportions which, taken as a whole, constitute the ship of the line, one has only to enter one of the six-story covered construction stocks in the ports of Brest or Toulon. The vessels in process of construction are under a bell-glass there, as it were. This colossal beam is a yard. That great column of wood which stretches on the earth as far as the eye can reach is the mainmast. Taking it from its root in the stocks to its tip in the clouds, it is sixty fathoms long, and its diameter as its base is three feet. The English mainmast rises to a height of two hundred and seventeen feet above the waterline. The navy of our fathers employed cables. Ours employs chains. The simple pile of chains on a ship of a hundred guns is four feet high, twenty feet in breadth, and eight feet in depth. And how much wood is required to make this ship? Three thousand cubic meters. It is a floating fortress. And moreover, let this be borne in mind, it is only a question here of the military vessel of forty years ago, of the simple sailing vessel. Steam, then in its infancy, has since added new miracles to that prodigy which is called a war vessel. At the present time, for example, the mixed vessel with a screw is a surprising machine, propelled by three thousand square meters of canvas, and by an engine of two thousand five hundred horsepower. Not to mention these new marvels, the ancient vessel of Christopher Columbus and of Duroitier is one of the masterpieces of man, inexhaustible in force as is the infinite in gales. It stores up the wind in its sails. It is precise in the immense vagueness of the billows. It floats, and it rains. There comes an hour, nevertheless, when the gale breaks that sixty-foot yard like a straw, when the wind bends that mast four hundred feet tall, when that anchor which weighs tens of thousands is twisted in the jaws of the waves like a fisherman's hook in the jaws of a pike, when those monstrous cannons utter plaintive and futile roars, which the hurricane bears forth into the void and into the night, when all that power and all that majesty are engulfed in a power and majesty which are supreme. Every time that immense force is displayed, to culminate in an immense feebleness, it affords men food for thought. Hence, in the ports, curious people abound around these marvelous machines of war and of navigation, without being able to explain perfectly to themselves why. Every day, accordingly, from morning until night, the quays, sluices, and the jetties of the port of Toulon were covered with a multitude of idlers and loungers, as they say in Paris, whose business consisted in staring at the Orion. The Orion was a ship that had been ailing for a long time. In the course of its previous cruises, thick layers of barnacles had collected on its keel to such a degree as to deprive it of half its speed. It had gone into the dry dock the year before this in order to have the barnacles scraped off. Then it had put to sea again, but this cleaning had affected the bolts of the keel. In the neighborhood of the Balearic Isles, the sides had been strained and had opened, and, as the plating in those days was not of sheet iron, the vessel had sprung a leak. A violent equinoctial gale had come up, which had at first staved in a grating in a porthole on the larboard side, 
and damaged the foretop gallant shrouds. In consequence of these injuries, the Orion had run back to Toulon. It anchored near the arsenal, it was fully equipped, and repairs were begun. The hull had received no damage on the starboard, but some of the planks had been unnailed here and there, according to custom to prevent of air entering the hold. One morning the crowd, which was gazing at it, at it witnessed an accident. The crew was busy mending the sails. The topman, who had to take the upper corner of the main topsail on the starboard, lost his balance. He was seen to waver. The multitude thronging the arsenal quay uttered a cry. The man's head overbalanced his body. The man fell around the yard. With his hands outstretched toward the abyss, on his way he seized the foot-rope, first with one hand, then with the other, and remained hanging from it. The sea lay below him in a dizzying depth. The shock of his fall had imparted to the foot-rope a violent swinging motion. The man swayed back and forth at the end of that rope like a stone in a sling. It was incurring a frightful risk to go to his assistance. Not one of the sailors, all fishermen of the coast, recently levied for the service, dared to attempt it. In the meantime, the unfortunate topman was losing his strength. His anguish could not be discerned on his face, but his exhaustion was visible in every limbs. His arms were contracted in horrible twitchings. Every effort which he made to reascend served but to augment the oscillations of the foot-rope. He did not shout, for fear of exhausting his strength. All were awaiting the minute when he should release his hold on the rope, and from instant to instant heads were turned that his fall might not be seen. There are moments when a bit of rope, a pole, the branch of a tree, is life itself, and it's a terrible thing to see a living being detach himself from it and fall like a ripe fruit. All at once a man was seen climbing into the ribbing, rigging with the agility of a tiger-cat. This man was dressed in red. He was a convict. He wore a green cap. He was a life-convict. On arriving on a level with the top, a gust of wind carried away his cap, and allowed a perfectly white head to be seen. He was not a young man. A convict employed on board with a detachment from the galleys had, in fact, at the very first instant, hastened to the officer of the watch. And in the midst of the consternation and the hesitation of the crew, while all the sailors were trembling and drawing back, he had asked the officer's permission to risk his life to save the topman. At an affirmative sign from the officer, he had broken the chain riveted to his ankle with one blow of a hammer. Then he had caught up a rope, and had dashed into the rigging. No one noticed, at the instant, with what ease the chain had been broken. It was only later on that the incident was recalled. In a twinkling he was on the yard. He paused for a few seconds and appeared to be measuring it with his eye. These seconds, during which the breeze swayed the topman at the extremity of a thread, seemed centuries to those who were looking on. At last the convict raised his eyes to heaven and advanced a step. The crowd drew a long breath. He was seen to run out along the yard. On arriving at the point, he fastened the rope to which he had brought to it and allowed the other end to hang down. Then he began to descend the rope, hand over hand, and then, and the anguish was indescribable, instead of one man suspended over the gulf, there were two. One would have said it was a spider coming to seize a fly, only here the spider brought life, not death. Ten thousand glances were fastened on this group. Not a cry, not a word. The same tremor contracted every brow. All mouths held their breasts, as though they feared to add the slightest puff of wind, which was swaying the two unfortunate men. In the meantime, the convict had succeeded in lowering himself to a position near the sailor. It was high time. One minute more, and the exhausted and despairing man would have allowed himself to fall into the abyss. The convict had moored him securely with the cord to which he clung with one hand, while he was working with the other. At last he was seen to climb back on the yard and drag the sailor up after him. He held him there a moment to allow him to recover his strength, and then he grasped him in his arms and carried him, walking on the yard himself to the cap, and from there to the main top, where he left him in the hands of his comrades. At that moment the crowd broke into applause. Old convict sergeants among them wept, and women embraced each other on the quay, and all voices were heard to cry with a sort of tender rage, 
pardon for that man. He, in the meantime, had immediately begun to make his descent to rejoin his detachment. In order to reach them the more speedily, he dropped into the rigging and ran along one of the lower yards. All eyes were following him. At a certain moment fear assailed them. Whether it was that he was fatigued or that his head turned, they thought they saw him hesitate and stagger. All at once the crowd uttered a loud shout. The convict had fallen into the sea. The fall was perilous. The frigate Algeceres was anchored alongside the Orion, and the poor convict had fallen between the two vessels. It was to be feared that he would slip under one or the other of them. Four men flung themselves hastily into a boat. The crowd cheered them on. Anxiety again took possession of all souls. The man had not risen to the surface. He had disappeared in the sea without leaving a ripple, as though he had fallen into a cask of oil. They sounded, they dived, in vain. The search was continued until the evening. They did not even find the body. On the following day, the Toulon newspaper printed these lines. November 17, 1823. Yesterday, a convict belonging to the detachment on board of the Orion, on his return from rendering assistance to a sailor, fell into the sea and was drowned. The body has not yet been found. It is supposed that it is entangled under the piles of the Arsenal Point. This man was committed under the number 9,430, and his name was Jean Valjean. End of Book 2, Chapter 3 Recording by Von Ullman V-O-N-S-T-A-K-E-S dot blogspot dot com